Okay, good morning, welcome. Uh, my name is Mark Fowler, and this is our March version of Always our Always Creating Value podcast. And we have Marilyn Tam. We're very happy to have Marilyn Tam. We, um, we do this on a monthly basis. It's the second Wednesday of the month. Um, our approach here is to, to interview people who in their daily, daily life, business life, career life, are always advancing the process. They're always creating value for themselves and others, looking for the potential for, for the future. Um, this is something that was integral to our business, which is I'm the president of uh, Stowe Management Corporation, and we're a boutique business reengineering firm, and I've worked with hundreds of firms. But um, the, the essence of how we were able to help those companies wasn't, wasn't just cutting costs or firing people or you know, doing dramatic things, even though occasionally we might have to, but it was, it was reaching into the heart of the business in a way that everybody became involved. Everybody was connected. We, we would create a conversational dialogue with everybody so that they, and in some cases, we even uh, trained them in, in conversation. And almost all of those companies succeeded dramatically because of their involvement, not only from a, uh, from a professional perspective, but, but from a human perspective and being able to dialogue with each other and being able to uh, advance the process. And so we've been looking for um, people that either I know or people that we know of to be interviewed, to be able to give us all another perspective of how people can add value. Uh, and you don't have to be senior executives in the company to be able to consistently add value or in your life or, you know, or in, your, in your charitable organization. As a matter of fact, just before this, we were talking about Rotary and how important organizations like Rotary are and being able to, to give, you know, to, to give back there. Um, we'll be having some questions periodically um, during the, during our hour. Um, I'm going to set aside some time at the end for more questions. Um, but um, don't feel free, feel free to take notes and you can use the chat and um I'm now going to introduce Marilyn. Um, I figured with that, if I was going to interview Marilyn, I had to have this big biography of this, <laughs> this lady because she is just so, so effective at being and, and so committed and so persistent that, that, like she says in one of her articles, she just dreams. You know, I, I, I focus on my goals and focus on my dreams. And um, I'm going to have to take a little note. Um, you were the president of Avita, and you were the president of Reebok Apparel. You were the vice president of Nike. You formed four companies, four startups. Um, Inc. Magazine puts you at the top 100 um, business speakers in, in the United I guess in, in the world. Um, I think they have you as a top 30 inspirational speakers. Um, I think Femme, femme entrepreneur, if that's how you, how you say it, has you as the top, top third part of the top 30 uh, female entrepreneurs in the world. Um, and I suppose we can go on and on. You've got several books. Uh, you know, uh, I, I, read, I read your articles on Medium. 
Uh, we both belong to the Rotary E-Club of World Peace. Uh, I don't know where you find time. And you're a gardener. So, you know, <laughs> where do you find time? Would you please, uh, before we go on, uh, I want to ask Ann if she would please just give us a heads up on some protocol here. Thanks, Mark. I just wanted to let everybody know that we really want to have you be a participant. So at the end of Mark and Marilyn's discussion, you'll be able to ask questions. Uh, but be aware, and we want those questions, that when you do, you will be recorded and therefore you'll be part of the promotion and history of, of this podcast when it's shared. And uh, hopefully that's not a problem for you. We love having you. Take it over, Mark. Okay. Marilyn. Broaden, broaden my perspective, broaden my focus on you a bit to give us, uh, you know, even a better, a better sense of what, excuse me, what you do and, and, and why I, I asked you to be here. Well, thank you, Mark. It's, it's a joy to have a chance to talk to you and your audience about adding value because that's your, your premise for this whole uh, series. And I thought about what, provoked me or excited me or triggered me into adding value. And I, th I think I have to go back to my childhood when I used to follow my grandmother around when I was about five or even around there. And she, now my grandmother is not your typical career woman. She and my grandfather were in a, basically an arranged marriage. They were still in the late teens when they got married and she proceeded to have nine children. So this is not your normal career woman that we think about. But she, with that background, decided that she was going to help people. And how she did that was because we, I'm born, I was born in Hong Kong, and, and we were living in Hong Kong. And when I was a young child, there were a lot of people um, running from China into Hong Kong for a better life, escaping. And it's just sort of like what we have now in America, where people come here to try to get a better life. They want to add value and create a life that may, means something more than just basic survival. So my grandmother, because she saw this, she decided to start a blanket drive. What that meant is every winter, and people think of you know Hong Kong being in the tropics, but the winters get quite bitter because we're on the ocean and the winds come from north, meaning from China in. So it gets quite bitter cold because it's a damp cold. So she decided to start a blanket drive and it became so successful that it became what we now call the community chess. And it is one of the biggest charities in Hong Kong. And this is a lady with no formal training in any of this. And then she decided out of her, her desire to help to create value in a big way. It was just by first starting just giving blankets out and hitting up everybody she knew for funds and support for blankets. And next thing you know, she's getting people housing, she's getting people education, she's getting people medical care. It just grew and grew and grew. And I was just a little kid. I mean, it was like five years old when I started this. I go with her on these trips to out to areas that I probably wouldn't have seen for a longer, much longer time because I was just a kid um, to understand how somebody just out of their desire can add value and make a huge difference. She's of course long past, but what she has added value to has become an institution. And so I just, that in some way was embedded in my brain that if you have a passion, if you have a vision, you can make a difference and you can add value in so many ways that ripples forever. And so it gave me a sense of 
possibility. It gave me a sense of how a person can make a difference. And it also gave me a, a ability to think big, think big that other than our little world of, oh, I can, I'm so small, I can only, you know, help myself. No, we can help everybody around us and, and ripple to the world. So that's really how I started in thinking about adding value. And as you mentioned, since then, I have um, left Hong Kong. I left Hong Kong as a teen, halfway high through high school. I never finished high school. I went to college halfway through high school. And that's another long story we won't go into. But I was so driven to make a difference that I went to a college halfway through 10th grade. Um, after skipping, well, from 7th to 9th grade, I went from halfway through 7th grade to halfway through 9th grade, 10th grade, halfway through 10th grade, and I went to college. Um, all because of the desire to make a difference. And so not really knowing what I was going to encounter as I grow and, and um, evolve, if you will, and even what this new country was going to be like, my idea of making a difference, of adding value in your terms, drove me to really um, succeed in many ways that I never even dreamed about because I didn't even know these were possibilities. And so I just like everybody to think about their lives and how they can expand. And undergraduate, graduate in about four years or so. And then from there, really going through the different work that I did um, from Nike to my own consulting company to Reebok and then to CEO of Aveda, but each time figuring out how can I add value in addition to just my work. Give you an example, in Reebok, I remember as a child looking at child laborers, actually being a child laborer myself, which again is another story, um, to work with all the countries that we had production in when I was at Reebok to change the labor standards of workers in all those countries in the apparel industry, which is where I was in. So that made a difference, not only in just the financial bottom line of the organization, but it made a difference in the well-being of all the countries that we're working in. But here's the, the good story on top of that. When in the 90s, people were agitating about labor child labor and slave labor and, and inadequate, inadequately paid labor. Reebok was not targeted because we set the standards. And I have to add that uh, Levi was one of the pioneers and I actually learned some of the um, beginning thoughts from them. And we of course took it from there to expand it. So whatever you do, you can find a way to add value within your sphere. At, at, at Aveda as being CEO, being a very different industry again, uh, into color cosmetics, hair care, skin care, well-being. I said, how can I add value in addition to creating sales, creating well-being for the, our clients? How about our supply chain? How about the people that we work with? And how can we choose different areas where we can really make a difference? So one thing we did was we approached um, in the Amazon, there are these tribes. Yanawana is the tribe I'm talking about where they have been displaced because Western, meaning the more developed nations, went to um, build 
uh, rubber plantations, leveling the rainforest, putting up rubber trees, converting these people who were basically um, hunter-gatherers into rubber tappers, which is a totally foreign world for them. And when uh, technology developed different kinds of synthetics that they didn't need as much rubber, these people were out of a job. And the next thing that came with Pete, again, people in the Western world who went down and said, we need hamburgers and leveling the rainforest again for growing cattle. And so again, these people were displaced to another world. And what we did at Innovator was to say, how can we give them back some identity? How can we give them back some of their lives? And also at the same time, give us value. It's not all one way. There's a way where we can be reciprocal. So we help them learn how to grow back their indigenous plants. Uruku is the name of the plant that they use for body painting. Because what are we buying from them? We're buying the plant dye, which has been tested for decades and generations on these people because they put it on themselves quite healthily and happily. And we can now give them a livelihood back into their own culture, their own background, and also give them a livelihood and a way to sustain themselves and go back into that culture. Meanwhile, we get products that actually work, that have been tested, and that's organic, and that is sustainable. So things like that, whatever area you're in, we can have a way to give back at value and become um, reciprocal and honoring of the bigger whole. So there's a couple of things that we've done over time that, that I feel that would really fit into our theme today of adding value. That's wonderful. Um, <laughs> I, I um, want to go back to your, your, your mom. Um, My grandmother. Oh, your gra it was your grandmother. <laughs> yes. Your grandmother, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> your grandmother, um, what were the, some of your first thoughts about what she was doing? I mean, what, what, did it shock you or did it, it, it just, it was as a five-year-old, this is just fun or how did you get um, connected in that way? Or, you know, maybe it was a DNA or something that you, you got from your grandmother. So. <laughs> I love my grandmother. She is um, the embodiment of just love and kindness. And she just is a very, she's a tiny little person. <laughs> she was very small. And to me, as a child, she wasn't that big, size-wise. So I could really easily relate to her oh, wow. physically. But also more than that, she was huge in spirit. I still remember when as a child, I'll look at her, go up to, you know, her husband's friend, my grandfather's friends, you know, um, quite wealthy family. And she would have her little clipboard. And she said, Hi, you know, whatever the name is. Last year, you donated 10 blankets. Can I put you down for 20 for this year? Just like that. And they just smile and they said, but of course, you know, I mean, they, she was just disarmingly loving, kind. And she was the same way with the people 
we went, went to work with on the streets. So I was happy to be with her. And I can see the smiles that came through when she just came up with no condition, loving these people. And people were at first concerned because, you know, here's this tiny little lady with this even smaller child going through to these rather questionable people. But it's just that because of her lovingness, her total beneath, you know, there was never uh, uh, anything negative about her way of approach and her respect for these people. We never got in any trouble. And, you know, people were recognizing her wave and, you know, hello, Mrs. Young, how are you? You know, it's just like people, how did you know that person? Oh, you know, we helped them six years ago or whatever it was. It was just so wonderful. I love that time. And I think back about that so fondly about how she made such a big difference from her heart. She didn't know any formal ways of giving back, but it just came from her heart. How can I give back? I see these people getting cold with no shoes in the, on the sidewalk. What can I do? And that's really, it was very inspiring for me. And, and I wish now I could have a chance to speak to her again and share with her what I've done from her inspiration. Wow. Um, I'm, I have a million questions in the back of my mind. <laughs> um, she obviously was a can-do person. She, I don't think she ever probably thought she couldn't do this at all. Mm. Uh, and it didn't even come into her into her consciousness. It was just mm-hmm. this is what you need to do. Um, mm-hmm. She was being a grandmother to, I would say, almost a grandmother to the world. In a way. Yes, she was, and she was beautiful. You know, I, I guess I'm, I look back at the pictures. You know, of course, when she's my grandmother, I don't think of her. She's beautiful. She's my grandmother, right? But I look at these pictures. Wow, she's a beautiful woman too. On top of so, she's inner beauty and outer beauty. And she just was so, um, it's funny too. She just had this wry smile about her. You know, if I say something ridiculous, she just look at me and smile and, and never was, you know, oh, that's dumb. But, you know, she just asked me a few questions and I got it. You know, so it was just really a wise person um, who was non-judgmental, unconditional and loving and funny, you know. Wow, well, I... One of the first questions that comes to mind is, well, how do you, um, obviously, you, you got a, a great role model. I mean, I don't think you could ask <laughs> for a better role model. Um, how, did, how did others, like in the large companies that you worked for, um, I could see where Avita might be much more responsive to what you were saying than some of the other companies might have been. Uh, how was, how did you go about approaching them in, in, in this, or did you just kind of do what grandma did, which accept it, we're doing this, you know, <laughs> <laughs> we're, um, we're on a mission and we're doing it. Don't you, don't you, don't you know that? You know? Well, I think the best way is to have them experience it themselves. For example, at Reebok, um, I was responsible for eight divisions. Of course, Reebok apparel, Apparel, but also Reebok Golf, Reebok, which is the chosen division. Um, so it's uh, Apparel, Golf, Children's Division, Rockport Apparel, Boston Whaler Apparel, LSA. Um, I know I'm forgetting a couple, it's about seven divisions. So I wanted each division to have a sense 
an understanding of what it means to be an active participant in the community and giving back. Because I feel like once a person and an organization is actively involved in your community, as in the local as well as the world, you think differently. You are able to think more outside of your little sphere of development or production or creation into how other people may react, respond, and um, what they need. So I allowed each division to choose a project that they would want to support. For example, the children's division decided, Weebok, decided they wanted to work with um, this AIDS for Children organization. And then the, the uh, apparel division wanted to work with um, mentally and de uh, developmentally challenged children. And so what we did was I allowed each person in each division to have two hours a week, I'm sorry, a month, two hours a week for uh, one day a month to be working with whichever charity. And then every quarter they could have an event with that, uh, that organization. It turned out to be maybe twice a year because it was just too much to try to do it quarterly. And so one of them actually only did it once a year. But what that meant is that there's an outreach to community and understanding more about the challenges as well as the needs of their customer or could potentially be customers. So we had an outreach in the community. They made, it made everybody feel much more engaged with the company as well as understanding their customer and as well as feeling that the, the customer I mean, the company cares. Also, we match what they did with funds so that whatever time they spent, we also match whatever funds. Give you an example. The development in disabled children, they were quite interesting. Some were quite small and some were really tall because it depends on what kind of disability they had, mental, physical, um, you know, whatever it could be, chemical. And so with this, we had a prom for them because they couldn't go to the prom because of all their challenges. So we created a prom in our warehouse, you know, with the banners, with the arch, with the flowers, where they could take pictures, the whole thing. And it was so fun because they, they had their support team and even some parents of theirs came. And then we took pictures, we gave them gifts and it made everybody feel so good. Of course, all the children were excited. Their caregivers were like happy. And we felt so, so rewarded that we were able to make a difference with these people who otherwise wouldn't have had any opportunity to experience what us regularly able people take for granted. But here's the benefit also is that the team learn about other challenges and other opportunities to support these people in our design. How can we make uh, products more um, able to serve a larger audience? How would, you know, how, where would the openings of the garments be? How would we work the shoes? How would we work different things so that a larger 
variety of, of peoples with challenges can experience um, ease in what they would have to either try to put on or wear or use. So it was a really wonderful um, way to, to interact and add value. It added to everybody. Um, how did you actually start it off? I mean, what did you say to them about, this is what, this is what we're doing. Uh, you know, how did you, I don't want to use the word sell it, but how did you, how did you, come, how did you come alongside them to get all that, that traction? Because well, you sure got traction on that. <laughs> well, what, the best way is to enlist people. It's not to tell them what to do. Nobody wants to be told what to do, even a child. <laughs> so the way to do is, and I have each division, I have meetings with them. And, and most of them, I would have an offsite meeting where we bring them together and have a conversation and dialogue. <clears throat> and so at different times like this, I'll drop this idea and I'll give it to different members of the team to lead as a charge. So it doesn't come from me. It's not from the boss said. So it could be my assistant. It could be one of the leaders in the group who has equal passion or interest in something. And they'll take it from there. And I'm really more in the background, as I mentioned earlier in other projects, too, to support it where I have the ability because of either my position, my financial um, allocation or authority to make things happen. So it's not me coming down and saying, you will do this, which makes it like medicine, uh, even though it's good for you, it's not pleasant, but it's more like something we want to do because this is fun. This is rewarding. This is something that gives us joy. This is something that gives us um, opportunity to experiment and learn from our audience and from our community. So it becomes something they own. It's not something I own that I'm pushing down on them. It's something they own and they can choose how they want to evolve and, and add value, if you will. Um. Uh, again, I keep getting all these questions in my mind. Um, um, you know, one of the, um, what comes to my mind, and I was thinking about it when you were talking about your grandmother, was the, what today is, you know, I want to say a hot button, but it's a big, a very important thing is the uh, diversity, um, equity, and inclusion. And I was thinking that even though it's something today, your, your grandmother was, all about that. Everybody, it may not have been a business. Okay. It obviously became a nonprofit, but I think she saw it. I think she saw it as from a world perspective. Like you said, the, the people who needed the help as well as the people who could help the, the, the opportunities to, you know, to, to make a difference um, is probably the basis of, of your own passion of the diversity and equity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. Am I, am I, Jumping too far ahead, or um, are I, I think assumptions. Or? I think when we recognize that, uh, like the name of my foundation, us foundation, that there's no them, that's only us here. Then diversity, equity, and inclusion is a natural. It's not something to be added on. This is what it should be. This is what it has to be for us all to thrive. And so it's a different take on it and saying, okay, I'm doing this because it's a good thing. 
no, this is what you should do just because it is like breathing. You know, you need to breathe if you can live. So it becomes a very different perspective. And how, how have, well, in many ways, you've been doing that from the beginning and probably never calling it diversity and equity and inclusion. You, you know, the, the involvement of, um, of your senior managers at those, at those seven, seven divisions, um, in many ways, you probably were opening doors for them that they already wanted to do. You know, there's mm-hmm. often things that we found in, in helping businesses. There have been people sitting back there wanting to do things and frustrated because they can't. And, and so, you know, back to the Reebok situation, that was all, all about inclusion and getting people involved in mm-hmm. without making a big deal about it, without, like you said, um, medicine. You know, or trying to you know, try to. So how how might that relate to today's diversity, equity, and inclusion? I know you you write about it. I know you speak about it. Um, today, it's become much more aware. It's now a conscious action, and and we do have to go through the process of bringing people to the point of awareness first. Because if you don't know it's an issue, it's not going to be addressed. Once you know its issue, then you have to learn what it's about, how you're going to deal with it, how do you measure it, when do you know, how do you know when it's going to really be taking effect, and what are the benefits? How is this adding value? So we're in the beginning stages of it still. Um, we are beginning, of course, to see a lot of the negative because that's usually that what's happening is to see the negative of non-inclusion, of non-equity, of non, um, the non, the, the nose of, of, of some project. But now we're beginning to see the positives of this. There are many funds now, investment funds, and which is a big measure for us in, in the Western world, especially where it's bringing dollars and cents to us. And so there are enough investment funds now that are based on this as a measure, as a metric, we will only invest in companies that have good metrics on these because they've noticed that companies that have good metrics on these issues make money as compared to the ones that have less in the same field. So like if in a particular industry, if there's 10 companies, if two of them are much more um, advanced in their work of diversity, equity, and inclusion, those two companies return better um, to, the, to the investment and to the stockholders than the ones that don't. So there's enough of the distinction that investment companies have latched onto this to make it as, as a selling point, as, as a metric to invest. So this is a way that we're making a difference in our world, which is so much measuring uh, dollar value. So it's a way of us changing the awareness because bottom line comes back to how we measure things. So in many companies, it's becoming a measure. And I say the most effective ones are the ones where the senior leaders from the CEO on down are really 
not only speaking this, but acting, acting like this, where they're saying, this is a measure, this is a metric, and we are going to use it as something that we consider in promotion, in raises, and all the different other benefits that you as an employee may be able to generate working here. So it's becoming a distinguishing difference. And it's also a recruitment tool because the younger generation particularly are more interested in diversity, equity, and inclusion than than the older generation, which were uh, trained and conditioned in a world where this is not a topic. The younger generation has more of the opportunity to see a larger range of people, larger range of experiences. And with the internet, what we have done is really flattened and expanded our world so much that everybody is able to see and able to uh, experience the differences here and to say, why should this person have less because of you know, their philosophical reasons, their gender, their orientation, whatever it is, these things become less of a barrier and there's more questions raised. So it is happening. Is it as fast as, as we can have it? No, but is it something that is really making a difference already? Yes, and it's exciting. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you speak, I, I, I think you said today that you also have a, a speech today. I thank you very much for having <laughs> a double header here. Um, <laughs> Um, um, when you talk to groups about diversity, um, et cetera, um, what is it, do you start off with the, 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 um, the value add for everybody or is there another approach or how do you, how do you start that? Or is it kind of like your grandma's? You gave 10, you gave 10 blankets last year now because you give 20 blankets this year. Um, it depends on the group. The group I just spoke to that you mentioned, I actually did it yesterday morning, so I'm happy about that. It was, um, it was based on gender. But sometimes I talk to a, an organization which is interested in, in general diversity. And depending on the exposure and the level of, of understanding of that group, I may start all the way back on the conditions of the world. Meaning... Here's where we are in the developed, what we call the developed world, meaning the economically more developed parts of the world, the population there. Then I break out the population growth and all the different parts of the world by geographic and economic. And once you see that, you're going to see that the growth by 2040 is all in the developing world. The developed world, as we call it, the financially developed world, actually is just maintaining about the same number of population as we have today, which means the growth is complete not only in in the developing world, but we are actually decreasing in percentage of the world's population. So for us in the developed world, and I really have an uh, issue with that term, but I don't know what else to use right now. Unless it's financially developed world, because we're not really not that developed otherwise. Financially developed world. We are going to be lacking financial 
uh, support because we don't have, look at Italy is a good example. Japan is another good example. Both of those countries are running out of people and they are basically recruiting people. And even Japan, which is such a close xenophobic society is now opening up to allowing more immigration. Why? Because if we don't, if they don't have growth, they're going to disappear. And also as the population ages, which is what's happening if you don't have any growth, is that your population is getting older and older. You're going to have a lot of people in social security or whatever the version of that is, with nobody to support that social security. It's a, it's a, it's a very scary negative scene. So the only way we in the financially more developed world can contain and maintain and sustain is by welcoming immigration, diversity, and encourage, because we're not producing more people here in, in the financially developed world as, as to even sustain or, or, or increase our population. So for us to keep putting in the wall, walls and blocks up against other people who may not look like the, the stereotype of what they expect to live in that country, it's a real challenge. So when we look at it that way, then we say, your workforce is not going to look like most of the leaders now. So if you're going to expand your workforce and have um, strong leadership, you have to bring in the diversity. So it becomes a situation where you're not bringing in diversity because it's a good to, it's because you need it for your survival. So it completely changed the equation and your thinking. And then, of course, I give them specifics. But you have to start with some place. And this is for the people who are not maybe still either skeptical or not have any understanding of why it's such an urgent uh, need for us to shift our thinking of it's not a good to, it's not charity. This is a survival sustainability issue that we need to address now. When you, uh, when you open the topic, with whoever you're talking to, what is the, what's the first reaction? Is it embracing or is it resistant or is it uh, nothing? I mean, or, or, all, or all of the above, I, I don't know, but um, how? It's hard to, <laughs> you can't say that because I'm talking to so much of a range of people from people who are already very much engaged and are just saying, okay, how do we go from here? I understand this. I need to go from here. Or where, whereas I may go to another organization where I was brought in because there's severe resistance. And, and in many organizations, I may be talking to a global audience where there will be some countries who are quite used to doing that. For example, Philippines has, um, and some of the companies I work with and some that you might know, like Accenture, they have 51% of their senior le leadership into the Philippines as women. So Philippines is quite used and they've had women presidents. So they're quite used to having women as leaders. Whereas in some other countries like our own, that we have our first vice president who is a woman, uh, the resistance may be higher here than there because for them it's like, it's normal. So, and when I talk to a global audience, I would get all the whole different reactions. Or if I speak to some company, uh, some organization which is a ma major presence in the Middle East or some parts of Asia, the resistance may be higher. But uh, 
combining that, we find a common ground. And that's what we always need to do is to honor the people who have the, the least amount of information, because I don't think anybody came out trying to be judgmental, but they don't have the information. So that's where they have the information to the one who has the most information, but may not be able to use it properly because they haven't been given the tools. So knowing that there's always a range and how do you address the range, embrace them and be unconditional and non-judgmental about it. Because everybody comes from their perspective because they think that's the best. Nobody's saying, I want to believe in this because it's wrong. They want to believe in what they believe in because that's what they think is right. So we don't start by making people wrong. We start by saying, okay, this is what the world looks like based on common agreed to statistics and numbers and information. Can we agree to this or at least have some opening to the possibility of this? And if that's the case, how do we go from here? Um, you know, in the United States, um, there is a, a big shift at maybe not the leadership aspect, but, um, you know, I'm involved with California Society CPA for many years, and we've been tracking, um, and Cynthia's on, she can jump in if she'd like, um, we've been tracking for years the, the amount of the difference between the female and the male population. And the female, from a college perspective, I may have the wrong, but 60% of the college um, graduates are women in accounting. And it's, it's made a, a big change in um, the, the accounting world uh, and amazing. So, and I would imagine the legal world as well. So I would think that, I, I don't know as it relates to, um, to other, other markets or other industries per se, but in the professional industries, women in the medical field has is, is, is changed dramatically in the last 20 years. Um, uh, do, do you talk to organizations like that? Uh, or do you, is it major companies or? In Definitely. And we talked, I talked to organizations. In fact, I have a, you want to be talking to the county organization in May in, in Orlando, I mentioned it earlier. So um, this, uh, but when we look at the senior leadership of these organizations, we still find in most cases, I would say probably in all cases still, that is the male, white male that's dominating in the top tiers of the organization. So um, at the entry level, I think we've made great great progress, but in terms of pay scale and in terms of uh, senior leadership, those are not as equitable, if you will, as we would like to see it because of nothing else other than, are we getting the best uh, perspective, if you say the best value that we can for, for that organization or for that um, uh, industry? if we're not using all the available talent to the best uh, ability because of whatever barriers we have enacted consciously or unconsciously, and a lot of it's unconsciously, into not assisting the potential breadth of leadership to rise. So it's, we hear and I see lots of perspectives of when they say, oh, we have more whatever it is, fill in the blank, graduating, uh, in this particular field, but let's look at the senior leadership. Let's look at 
the feeder chain into the leadership, is it really equitable? Um, what barriers have we put in to make it so that it's going to be very difficult for what we now call diversity, which is actually the majority of people when you add them all together. Um, what are we doing to, re to inhibit and restrict them from being able to rise to the level to give all that they have to add value to the organization or to the industry or to the world? So it's a question that is a different way of looking at the issue. And then you realize, oh, maybe we're not as far ahead as we thought we, we are. That's true. And then there's all kinds of diversity as well. I mean, it's, there's, as you said, uh, male, female, different cultures, different, different um, ways of thinking. Um, we can be, as individuals, we can be very diverse in how we think. It doesn't matter who we are. We can be just thinking different, you know, different ways. Um, Cindy, would you like to answer a question, ask a question? I'm putting you on the spot, but <laughs> I, asked, I asked you guys because I know how important this is to, to the Cal CPA organization. Mm -hmm. Um, um, uh, yeah, Cheryl, Smith, Cheryl Smith said she was going to try to make it because I, I thought that she would be interested in this as well. But um, mm -hmm. I'm so glad you came. Yeah, thank you. Um, thank you, Marilyn, for everything. Um, I am actually part of the um, diversity, equity, and inclusion group with CalCPA, mm -hmm. um, along with Cheryl, which uh, Mark had mentioned. Um, we do have a large group of individuals and. Um, we're really working towards um, kind of like you said, just looking outside the box and trying to, you know, diversify not only within our Cal CPA organization, but also um, everybody on the outside as well. Um, so that's one thing that we are working on, We're working on a website, um, kind of like uh, we have a lot of women, men, different ethnicities. And I think another thing that we have come across is we are looking at just not as Mark mentioned, not just male, female, you know, but there's so many cultures. There's, uh, we're learning a lot about, you know, LGBTQ plus community, um, identifying, you know, the pronouns nowadays, things like that. Mm -hmm. So I think we are learning a lot from each other in our group. And I think that's, you know, a great way for our organization to grow. Cause I have worked with organizations in the past where it was, you know, dominated by, um, senior staff that were just, you know, white. And I feel like that, um, within Cal CPA, it's a whole new world for me and <laughs> working at this organization because I feel like we are doing a lot um, since I joined. I joined in November, so I'm quite new. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, from what I've seen so far, um, I, I do think we are working towards um, that diversity, equity, and inclusion across the board. And I think that's a great opportunity um, to just make a difference. And, and everybody has value. Everybody has something that they could you know, mm -hmm. provide to the group and um, it's a way for them to grow. Um, I did have a question for you, though, about, you know, um, your organization and kind of um, it seems like you said doors kept opening. But what would you do when like somebody came to you and thought your ideas weren't great or you kind of started to doubt, um, you know, what ideas you had when you were trying to present to other people? Because because I've come across that myself in certain things. And, and I just was wondering, like, what kind of advice you could give to others when doors start closing um, on you? Mm -hmm. Well. I wish you were at my presentation yesterday because I was working, <laughs> we were talking to um, 
women leaders um, in a large company that is in 100 countries, the 54,000 employees. And they just started very recently. They had a lot of diversity group, but they finally started one less than two years ago for women. Um, and this is a very common issue for a lot of women is that we are conditioned by culture and by um, family values a lot of times to be more respectful and to also be more um, responsive to other people's feelings and, and um, ways of handling things. So we're conditioned normally more to be more reticent to speak up and to also take no, if you will, for an answer. Uh, whereas uh, uh, most men would be much more able to just brush aside whatever the negativity is and pursue or not be feeling uncomfortable to speak about their work, their accomplishments, and cite examples of why they are the best there ever was. And it's not something that is natural for women. And so when we recognize our, <clears throat> our own inner conditioning, that's the first step to recognizing that maybe that was not a no forever. Maybe that was just, I didn't have enough information and I, I don't have time to deal with it. I'm just gonna say no now. And for you to maybe come back with a well thought out um, analysis of why it's positive and also find out why they said no. Maybe it's just they were in a bad mood. Maybe they heard something wrong. Maybe whatever it was. So to find out and if you believe in whatever you're doing so much, you can then present and do the research to substantiate why you believe what you said is true, is right, and is the proper thing to do now, and to address the concerns they have so that you can shift the dialogue and not to make them wrong, but to show them how what you're proposing is adding more value than if you didn't go ahead. Uh, the, the risks that might have be in, um, involved in whatever you're asking for is so small compared to the reward because there's always positive and negative to anything. So if you just show the whole picture without judgment, without um, making them wrong, you can probably make a lot of headway. But the first thing you have to feel is that, go back inside, know that you have all the value and right to be where you are, and then do the research. If they, uh, if they challenge your proposal, whatever it is, go back and say, am I really solid in what I'm proposing? If I am, what other uh, resistance that I'm res receiving and why? You know, can you find out from the person why they have the resistance? If not, can you observe from the background, from the history of either uh, the person or the company why there would be resistance? Address those and deal with it from there instead of saying, oh, well, they said, no, I'm going to drop it. It's, if it's enough, if it's important enough, you can do it. Look, remember my grandmother. I mean, she had nothing going for her and she made nine kids. Can you imagine? <laughs> I mean, that would just drive anybody to drink, much less work. But, you know, she dealt with that and created this for a word for herself because 
it was her passion. I mean, how many people would you think would have told her no? You're a tiny little woman. You don't have any, uh, you know, training in this. Well, how are you going to get anywhere? She just persisted. She just persisted. And now is one of the biggest charities in the whole Hong Kong. Wow. That's awesome. Thank you. Um, if I, I'm going to do a little promo um, <laughs> a bit. Um, the, the book behind me, Revolutionary Conversations, um, which was authored by me and co-authored by Noel McDonald and Barbara Gunn Mueller, um, addresses a lot of what Marilyn was saying. And it's a little bit of, it's, it's, a, it's a how-to. And much of it, I was listening to Marilyn and, and, and so much of what she was saying was resonating with the, with the book. So just an FYI. Um, Marilyn, um, I want to go back a little bit to how you maintain that always creating value. Is it because so many you have you're so diverse, you know, between gardening and and writing and speaking and running companies and building companies, whatever? Is it is it? Be, I, I find it a little bit for myself when I change when I change from one thing to the next, my creativity kicks in or my value add kicks in a little different. I'm just wondering, how do you maintain that? How do you how do you, how are you always in that value proposition mode? I think I think all of us like to see a um, positive change from our actions, from our thoughts. And if you come from a, a, a perspective that I'm here on this earth for a reason, and that reason is to serve, to help, to make a difference, uh, adding value, it becomes something that we're here for. So whatever you do, whatever you think, should be towards a line of how is this going to benefit more than just me? How can it benefit? What? How can my experience benefit others? How can my my um, actions benefit others? How can my everything that I am about benefit others? It becomes natural if we realize that we're here for a short time, and you know whether you live seventy or hundred years is. It's not that long in the scheme of time. And if that's the case, don't we want to leave this place better than we had it? And how does that make you feel when you, there's always this talk about when you are about to die, you get the, uh, a snapshot of your whole life. What would you like your snapshot to be like? <laughs> oh, here's what I took from somebody else and here's when I, you know, no. You're not going to want that because at some level, I think everyone has an idea of knowing that there's inherent interaction with everyone. There's inherent goodness, and I believe that in everyone. And when we're in that large last few moments, we want to see that we actually left this place, a leg legacy of some kind that is positive. And I don't think like this every day, but I think... If you have that in your core, everything you do and all your thoughts become like that. You don't have to assess it any way. It just is the natural way you react. It's like breathing then. It's not something you have to say, is this good or bad? You just automatically go to the good. Yeah, thank you. Um, this is a question that we ask everybody and that is, 
Um, I know that when I make presentations, I come away and I say, what just came out of my mouth? You know, that there are things that, that we say uh, on, this, on a podium that we wouldn't often say or even think. It just comes out of us. It's, it's whatever. I just, is there anything in the dialogue today that, that either surprised you or warmed to it or I never thought about that before? Anything, anything new for you in this, in, in, in this interview process? Um. I think more than anything is I don't think about my grandmother all the time, but when you ask me what added value, I realized how important she was to my life. Um, I honored her, I think, last Women's Day last year. Um, and then daily she's not top of my consciousness i do have a picture on in my room my meditation room because she is very special to me but day to day she's not a topic of conversation but today i realize in a deeper way how much i honor this little lady who with no training with no nothing more than passion and seeing something that she can do and went ahead and did it and found a way to do it. And it was an inspiration to say, you can do anything you want as long as you have the passion and that everything else you can learn from there, you know, because she really didn't have the main training or anything like that. You know? So I honor her and I'm, I hope she's looking down and saying, okay, good girl. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's, let's, I warned you about James, right? So, <laughs> Marilyn, thank you very much. We'll let James jump in here a little bit. James, do you have your questions? Uh, thank you so, Mar uh, so much, Mark, for letting me participate as a, uh, as, as a participant, not just in the background here, because really ever since I found out that you were coming, Marilyn, and uh, read your bio, I've, it's just, um, and then throughout the course of this conversation, uh, there's just been some things I've wanted to ask you, but there's, there's things that are very hard for me to put into words. And you seem able to touch on stuff that, that like you said, a lot of the resistance that people have is unconscious, you know, and I can see in my own life, I just turned 60 years old, that, that I, my sense of consciousness has changed a great deal. I went from being somebody who's very close-minded and instinctive to somebody who really sees a lot more of, of um, how people have supported me and how I didn't do anything myself, you know, mm -hmm. and, it, and the more I've opened my mind to that, the more I've seen that it's been women who've had the greatest influence in my life. I don't know, you know, I don't want to dishonor my father or any of the other men in the, in the room, but it just seems like, um, there's a certain resilience that women have that's missing in our system and our systems are now not working for us. Um, and so how do we bring, you know, that's just something that's been going on in my mind, but really what I also want to ask you, and this is more, this is more um, mundane, but I'm a graphic designer and a, and a advertising creative by um, training and career. And I just want you to know that um, the Aveda product line, my ex-wife had a hair salon, so I was exposed to the entire Aveda product line, the Aveda marketing, the, you know, and it was, 
at a time when I was really looking for uh, inspiration and something different and the whole palette of the product line and the way um, the, they were made plain where most people are busy and where most people are playing, they had beautiful photography with very, um, using a lot of restraint. You know, there's always the uh, make the logo bigger conversation. And it seemed like, <laughs> you know, sometimes a Veda would just have a logo and it would, you know, it just was left you to, uh, you know, go, wow, they're not really trying real hard. They have this green bottle and a little logo down there. The product must be great. To <laughs> some of the advertising that was really more showing um, you know, wheat and, and different natural organic things that, that went into the product line as opposed to the product itself. And I just, I just want you to know that that stuff blew me away when I was um, looking around in the, in the um, 90s, I think it was. <laughs> and uh, it, I didn't know if you had anything you wanted to add about your influence over how that <laughs> product was presented to the world, because I want you to know that it was standout. It really was um, amidst all the other products. Well, thank you so much, because that's when I was there. <laughs> um, I can't take all the credit. In fact, I have to give a lot of credit to Horst Ruckabacher, who was the founder of Ada. Uh, Horst um, was actually an immigrant, as like myself. He is from Austria, and he came here. He was already a hairdresser when he came to this country, and he actually stayed here because he was involved in a serious accident and could not leave the country. He was in hospital quite a while and then he had to pay off all the debt because of course he didn't have the American insurance then. And then he stayed on and the rest is history. But he, um, this is another story of somebody who really learned from their own experience because he started working in, he was apprenticed as a hairdresser at 14. So everything he learned was either from his mother, who was herbalist, or from his own experience. And his passion was really nature, is nature and the organic world. So that's why all, everything is organic. And, and we really uh, worked together well because he brought me in because he wanted to retire. And then he wanted to set the company up so that it would be able to be um, sold to something else so that he can transition out. And so his background and his emphasis is in, in the natural world. And so that's why the, uh, uh, the, the focus on that and the simplicity. And even though he's Austrian, he always says, is this Zen? So we were really into uh, making things clean and, and honest. Well, it came through and there was so many like... Um... Yeah, what I like to call them tertiary design elements. They sort of influence you without being out in front. And there was just so much of that. And it, it really, you said um, everything had to be organic. Um, that was not um, a term that companies were trying to use to sell their products then. In fact, it, more than anything, it probably um, represented an expense more than it did a value so that was, you guys were way out front with that. And, yeah, um, and it really spoke to me. Uh, and then all of a sudden here I am today talking to you and it's just, <laughs> it's amazing. So, but I won't, um, I won't bog us down with any of my other 10 questions. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just want to know how you do what you do, but I, I, I tell you, I have a partner, uh, Ann Hofferberth and, um, 
she, she really, you know, she's my partner, but I consider her um, the leader of our company because uh, so often her wisdom um, has proven over time, you know, she's not the loudest person in the room, but for some reason she has the, um, been incredibly influential. So anyway, um, thank you very much, the Marilyn, and, um, and you've got me, um, I want to hear more about a plant-based diet, but that's for another day. <laughs> so. I'm trying to remember the, uh, uh, I think it's Netflix has, has a movie about plant-based. It's, it's about, what is it? Game Changers. It's about a study that was done about athletes. Mm -hmm. And it talks about um, how much better they do uh, and all kinds of athletes, athletes, weightlifters and whatever, but it's, it's uh, something you might want to take a look at. Uh, and Marilyn might have something else to advise you, but that, that's, that was very inspirational, even though I knew, I knew better, you know, so anyway, still inspirational. So anyway, Marilyn, thank you very much. This was, this was fabulous. I, um, we, we started this, this little journey out about in December, and, you know, we went back and forth and this has been fabulous. You've been wonderful to us and appreciate the, the time that you've taken to, to help us see different ways about how to add value. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Anne, you want to say anything? You want to close off? Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Marilyn. You and I have been uh, blessed, really, because I had a mother who came from Ireland and had five children, <laughs> opened her own business with a sixth grade education that in four years will reach 100 years old. Wow. So I always often took credit for my success when I realized I owed it all to her because you and I had that wind beneath our sail at a very long, young age. And when you realize that, you realize how fortunate we were to have a mentor like mm -hmm. that. And at some point, I want to talk to you about China's one child policy and the impact of that on their growth or limits to their growth. Mm -hmm. So we'll leave that thought for another day. Thank you very You're much. Welcome. Thank you all. Thank um, you. Pleasure. Everybody has, everybody has their emails. Uh, Cynthia, thank you very much for doing this. I know that, you know, you, you were you only, you've only known me a very short period of time. And so <laughs> taking the gamble to do this, I appreciate it. And uh, I hope you let Cheryl know what happened. And uh, this will yeah. be up on board. This will be up online when? And? Uh, it'll uh, take, well, now we're on the weekend. So sometime next week, it'll be all edited and ready to go. Okay. We'll have a version for Maryland to take a look at. <laughs> right. Posting. So if you don't like your nose at some point, we'll take it. <laughs> okay. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, the Enjoy. podcast is essentially over, so I know I'm not ruining it by by speaking out, I don't think. But did you have a closing you wanted to do, Mark? Or I think I did it. I don't know. Okay. I just want to say it really has been an honor. I, I just there hasn't been one of these where I wasn't inspired, but you're just somebody, like I said, that like, you know, 30 years ago as a young designer, I was heavily influenced by your work. And so it's just, uh, it's really neat full circle to, yes. thank you. to see you. And you're just a beautiful person uh, all the way around. So thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you. Thank you, Anne. Thank you, James. Thank you, Marilyn. Take Goodbye. care. Maybe someday we'll do it again. Thank you. Okay. Stay well. Anything Bye -bye. Bye -bye.